Hello and welcome to another episode of No Particular Podcast. So I hope you guys are enjoying the episode so far. Um, if you have any suggestions or ideas for the show, like I've said at the end of the past couple, send them to uh, no particular podcast at gmail.com. Uh, even if it's a small improvement in the way that I edit an episode or something like that, if there's something that you notice that I'm not noticing, let me know. I'd like to try and make the change if you have ideas of how I could fix it to that help. If not, I'll do some research and see if I can figure out what I need to do to um, improve it. But I just I want to try and make the best kind of quality episodes that I can. As I've said, though, I'm no professional and I'm learning as I go. So although... I'm trying to do my best. It's not going to be necessarily the best out there for a while because I have a lot of learning to do. But uh, anyhow, so this episode was with uh, a gentleman that contacted me after I had an ad up on Craigslist um, asking for people to interview. And he said he was a private investigator and wanted to talk about what it is that he does, uh, how he kind of got into it and everything. And I thought it would be really cool. So um, I sat down with George Babnick, who is a licensed private investigator, as well as a physical security consultant. Uh, he owns and operates private detective, uh, a private detective agency based in Portland and serves clients throughout Oregon and beyond. Um, we're going to talk about uh, what a modern day private investigator really does, how he got started in the business, and what it takes to be a successful private investigator. We'll also talk about some of the cases that he's dealt with and um, some of the things that he's had to look into. And it was a really cool conversation. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I hope to maybe sit down and talk to him again sometime in the future. Learn learn a little bit more. And if you hear, if you think of a question that I didn't ask or something like that, feel free to send it to me. And yeah, I might sit down with George or any of my other previous guests and talk with them again. And if you have a, you know, a certain question you want me to ask, I'll jot it down and try and remember to ask him it next time I talk to him. But anyhow, so this is my conversation with uh, George Babnick. I hope you guys enjoy it. Oh, and you may also hear partway through in the beginning, like some scratching sounds in the background. That's uh, my catfish stick. She was trying to get in and be a part of the conversation but eventually i paused and went and put her away but anyhow if you're hearing that and you're wondering what the sound is it's just my cat in the background trying to make a bit of a ruckus but anyhow yeah enjoy the episode Excellent. Um, so do you want to just go ahead and just tell me uh, tell me who you are, George, and kind of what you do? Okay. Uh, my name is George Babnick. Uh, I'm a Oregon licensed private investigator, and I also do physical security consultation in conjunction with my investigation business. Uh, I was born and raised here in uh, Portland, Oregon. 
I went to Franklin High School, which is in southeast Portland. Mm, okay. And then from there, I went to Portland Community College and studied criminal justice. And after that, I went on to Portland State and earned a bachelor's degree. And then I applied for a police officer job with the city of Gladstone. Mm. And Gladstone's a little city just uh, north of Oregon City. And I got hired there. And I worked there for a couple years as a police officer, and then I moved on to the Portland Police Bureau, primarily because it was a larger agency with more uh, career advancement opportunities. And I worked in the Portland Police Bureau for a little over 30 years. I worked in every position that, pretty much every position that you can work in. I was a patrol officer, I was an investigator, I was a sergeant, a lieutenant, and I retired as a captain. Wow. In charge of the uh, Forensic Evidence Division. And one of the good things about law enforcement is when you do your 30 years, you can retire in your uh, mid-50s. And so I was, you know, 55 years old, uh, too young to not do anything, so I wanted to keep working. And because I had always enjoyed investigations and because I had a lot of experience in investigating all types of crimes and also doing internal investigations, uh, I decided to become a private investigator. And about five years ago, I opened my private detective agency, which I call Babnik and Associates. And since then, I have been working as a private investigator here in Oregon. And at the same time, I do a little bit of a physical security consulting. Okay. Would you say that while you were in law enforcement, you kind of gravitated towards the investigation kind of portion of stuff? Well, you know, in police work, particularly in local police work as opposed to maybe the FBI, uh, you do a lot of things besides investigating things. But every day you are investigating something. It might be investigating a traffic accident. It might mm. be investigating a domestic violence dispute. Or it might be, uh, as a detective, uh, investigating uh, some type of major crime like a murder, robbery, rape, homicide. Mm. Uh, so I always enjoyed pretty much everything that I did in law enforcement. I have no regrets about uh, spending 30-plus years in the business. I enjoyed it. Um, but I also enjoyed, I really enjoyed the investigative part. So... Upon retiring from law enforcement, uh, it just kind of came natural to me that I should use those skills and that experience to uh, take or do investigations in the private sector. Okay. So what is it that a, a private investigator really does? Well, you know, the work of a private investigator is kind of mysterious to some people because it's not like you see on TV shows. Um because after all, the work that a private investigator does is private. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called private investigations. Mm -hmm. And the information uh, that uh, private investigators discover is for their client only. It's not disclosed to anyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, but in real simple terms, the uh, job of a private investigator is to find things out. Yeah. Discover things. Um, Investigators do a lot of uh, analyzing of legal and financial and personal information. And depending on the needs of the client, it can involve everything from uh, doing comprehensive background checks on, on people, 
uh, conducting workplace investigations or finding missing persons. I actually have quite a few missing person cases Mm. uh, going on right now. Uh, And I also help uh, criminal attorneys prepare for uh, defenses, criminal defense cases. And sometimes I do some work on civil cases. Mm. A lot of time as a private investigator nowadays is spent behind a computer doing research. But it involves uh, physical field work, uh, doing surveillance, uh, talking to people, interviewing people, and sometimes even going undercover to, uh, you know, get the straight scoop on people. Yeah. So how did you get uh, started as a private investigator? Well, uh, the first thing that uh, I had to do was get licensed. Mm -hmm. In almost every state in the country, uh, there's a requirement that private investigators be licensed. Um, There's a few states that still are working on licensing, but most states require that you be licensed. Uh, Here in Oregon, uh, anyone doing uh, private investigation work must be uh, licensed, and the Oregon Department of Public Safety Standards and Training, kind of a long uh, word, but it's uh, commonly known as DPSST, is the licensing agency here in Oregon. And so I went through the process of uh, getting licensed. And uh, basically what that involves is uh, to be a private investigator in Oregon, you need 1,500 hours of documented investigative experience. Oh, wow. You don't have to get that through law enforcement. A lot of people don't. You could be an insurance investigator. Uh, You could have some other experience that relates to investigations. And as long as it meets the requirement of Oregon DPSST, um, then you can apply. And there's a written test that you have to take that tests your knowledge on Oregon laws and and administrative rules that pertain to private investigators. And you also have to pass a very comprehensive background check that the state does. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of... uh, mandatory disqualifiers that are set by administrative rule. Uh, There are quite a few things in a person background that will automatically disqualify someone from being a private investigator. Mm, Okay. What do you know, like what kinds of things those usually are? Yes, uh, there's a whole long list of them. And a person can go to the Oregon DPSST website and and see those rules. Uh, But basically... Uh, if you falsify any information on any application for a license, you'll be automatically disqualified. Mm. So when you submit your license to be a private investigator and you lie on your application or you don't disclose things and they find that out, then you're, you're toast. They're uh-huh. going to say no right off the bat. Also, if you've been convicted of any person felony, uh, it's an automatic uh, disqualifier. So if in your past... You have committed a crime, a felony crime against a person, and that'd be something like rape, oh. robbery, murder, manslaughter, criminally negligent homicide, uh, or even some types of felony assaults. Um, you would be forever barred from mm-hmm. uh, being a private investigator. Uh, so I would say if somebody is interested in being a private investigator, that they check with their state licensing agency to find out exactly what the 
the procedure is. Um, take a look at that list and see if there's anything. Yeah, that's you just take a look at the list him. and you see whether or not uh, you you should even apply because yeah. you know if you've been convicted of some type of person felony, maybe you've cleaned up your life and uh, and uh, you're living a good straight life now, but the state won't look too favorably upon that. Yeah. Uh, but each state has different uh, procedures and different rules and regulations. Um, so basically, that's what it takes. You have to pass the written test that the state gives. It's not a difficult task if you know something about uh, Oregon law and Oregon administrative rules and the criminal justice system. Okay. So, I mean, in your retirement and everything, like you could have become just like an avid fisherman or you could have taken up some little, like a woodworking hobby or something like that, you know. What made you decide, like, I'm going to take on a whole new career and become a private investigator? Well, you know, I do a lot of fishing. Oh, okay. Uh, and so I still manage to to work that in. Um, but like I said, I, I felt like I was too young to just sit around and do nothing. Okay. Uh, and so I looked to see, you know, what, what would I enjoy doing? And as a um, private investigator, I run my own business. So I, I make my own hours. Yeah. I take cases that I want to take and other cases that I don't want to take, I don't take. Yeah. So it's kind of a nice position to be in. Um, I also, um... I'm interested in writing, so I publish hmm. a blog about uh, security issues. Yeah. And uh, I'll just plug it a little bit right here. Yeah, go for uh, it. So if you're interested in physical security, not IT security, computer security, but physical security or personal safety, um, take a visit to my blog, which is physicalsecurityonline.com. And you'll see a number of articles uh, that I wrote, mostly some by other authors, about all types of uh, security issues and personal security uh, concerns. And I do invite uh, writers uh, to submit articles. Hmm. So if you're someone that uh, wants to kind of get published, um, you can go to my blog and you can submit an article for publication and uh, maybe I'll publish it. Yeah. When would you say that it is like, that uh, like physical security might kind of appeal to someone. This could be anyone that's like worried about their own, st like you know, all their their belongings getting stolen. This could apply to people that just even if they want to protect their their you know garage or something better, right? Right. Uh, on on my blog, I wrote a couple articles about how to protect your car from being stolen. Oh, okay. Uh, there's articles about uh, how to protect your home from burglaries. Um, there is articles about uh, what type of fences are best to put up around your home or your business if you want to keep intruders out. And contrary to popular belief, tall, sturdy fences are not the best fences to keep crooks out of your property. Really? Um, you're better off if you have a fence that's kind of uh, uh, wobbly. Hmm. Uh, it's very hard for a crook to climb over a chicken wire fence, for example. Okay. But who wants to have a chicken wire fence around their property? Yeah. So there are, are uh, kind of al alternatives to uh, between the chicken wire fence and the, you know, big, sturdy, you know, eight-foot-high solid wood fence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I discuss that on my blog. Um, also, uh, one of the things that I do in my security consulting business is I like to use not just best practices in the industry— 
but I like to use research, hmm. scientific research. And I've written a couple articles uh, about using research to enhance your security. For example, you might think that having security cameras on your property prevents crime, but there's no evidence to support that. Oh, really? On the same hand, I would recommend that you have security cameras, whether it's this new ring video doorbell or just old-fashioned security cameras. I would recommend that because if something does happen, it helps you identify who did it. Mm, And for an investigator, that uh, videotape is very valuable. But it doesn't really prevent people from from committing crimes. And think about this. Everybody knows that banks have some of the best security cameras around, Mm -hmm. but yet people still commit bank bank robberies. Uh, The Ring Video Doorbell, which I think is kind of a neat product, and there's some knockoffs uh, like it on the market now. Uh, Pretty much every crook can walk up to the front porch of a house and see, oh, that's a video doorbell. I mean, it's right out there in the open for all to see, but yet they'll still steal the package off your front porch. Yeah. So there is no evidence to show that security cameras prevent or deter crime, but they are great in helping to catch someone after they committed the crime. Uh, There's also, when I talk about using research for security, there's also some emerging research that shows that blue light for security uh, lights uh, will be more affected than the standard white light. Hmm. So if you're putting a uh, porch light uh, on your porch, consider using a blue light. Hmm. Um, so anyway, that's uh, part of what I do in conjunction with my PI business. Yeah. No, that's really, that's pretty interesting. Um, so, you know, we went over kind of what it takes uh to even consider getting into uh, PI work and everything. But, like, what does it take really to become a, a private investigator, like equipment or, like, mentality or just the, the person themselves? Like, what kinds of stuff, what kind of a person do you need to be to become a private investigator? Right. Um, there are a lot of private investigators that are licensed, but there aren't a whole lot of private investigators that can make a good living doing it. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons is that a lot of private investigators don't run their business like a business. Yeah. And being having a private investigation business, it's a business. It's a business where you are in the business to not only help people, but to make money. And a lot of people don't know how to really run a good business. So they, after a few years, uh, they drop out of the business. Uh, but... You know, some of the questions about what it takes to be a PI, um, do you need any certain kind of education? Yeah. You know, the answer is no. Uh, I happen to have a law degree, and I know other private investigators. Some have uh, law degrees, some have bachelor's degrees, some have community college degrees, and some have no degree at all. Yeah. Uh, Some, I think, are probably not even high school graduates. Um, Wow. But successful private investigators can come from all walks of life, and there's no specific education requirement. Um, Some of the personality or skill sets that make up a good PI, you know, I would think first and foremost would be integrity and trustworthiness. 
because the work that a private investigator does needs to stay private. Yeah. And if you're the kind of person who can't keep secrets, uh, if you're chatting with your friends and neighbors about the last latest case you worked on, um, that's uh, not going to help you in this business. Yeah. And as we get along here in uh, this program, I may talk about some of the cases that I've worked on, but I will do so in a very generic way yeah. so that uh, no uh, secrets are exposed. Yeah. Um, so would you say that um, someone having a, like a law enforcement background is kind of needed to be a successful PI? Like are most of the other private investigators that you've met and talked to, or most of them usually have a law enforcement background? You know, I'd say that many have a law enforcement background, but certainly not all. And yeah. it's certainly not an absolute necessity. Uh, private investigators come from all walks of life. Um, many do have a law enforcement background, whether it's with the FBI or state or local police. And that makes some sense because they've spent years doing many of the things that a private investigator is asked to do, like um, analyzing information, uh piecing together fragmented pieces of information, uh, conducting surveillance, writing detailed reports, testifying in court. Those are all things that most law enforcement officers do on a regular basis. Yeah. So just because you worked in law enforcement doesn't mean you're going to be a good, successful private investigator. Mm -hmm. But just because you didn't doesn't mean that you won't be successful either. Okay. Just being, I guess, kind of in law enforcement definitely like kind of sculpts you to get used to the tasks you're going to probably have to deal with being a PI, like you were saying, like writing reports and showing up in court and everything. Yeah, I think that's uh, well said, well put. Yeah. yeah. And there is, would you say that there's a specific way that you need to kind of uh, carry yourself while you're in court, like kind of addressing stuff like this? Um, Testifying in court? Yeah. Uh, and. I have testified in court probably several hundred times wow. on all kinds of different cases. Uh, everything from murder cases to, you know, traffic citations. Mm -hmm. um, there is a process, a uh, decorum for uh, testifying in court. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, um, you um, be honest. You answer the questions truthfully. And the facts are what they are. Yeah. And it's not for you as a, as a witness to make any determination as to whether or not someone is guilty or not guilty. Your job is to just uh, answer the questions that are posed to you by either the prosecutor or by the uh, defense attorney and let a judge or a jury decide on someone's guilt. Mm, that makes sense. Um, are most of the private investigators that uh, you know of men? You know, I would say, generally speaking, across the country, most private investigators are men, mm -hmm. but there are a lot of women in the field, and women actually have some advantages, I think. Oh, really? Um, oftentimes, in this business, you have to go out and talk to people, get information from them, and if you simply walk up to them and say, hello, I'm a private investigator, I'd like to ask you some questions, a lot of people won't tell you anything. Mm -hmm. Um Whereas opposed, when I was in law enforcement, uh, you could go up to people, and if they knew you were a police detective or even a uniformed police officer, a lot of people would be willing to talk to you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's because they felt like they wanted to help out the police 
or it's because they felt they had some legal duty to talk to the police, which in mm. most cases is not the case. But what I found out as a private investigator is you you have to ask questions, and sometimes you do so in a way that you don't come right out and tell them you're a private investigator. Yeah. And I found that some women, not all, but some women have a real knack for getting information out of people, uh, particularly uh, men. Uh, mm. Uh, a woman can get a lot more information out of the average man than the average fifty-year-old uh, white male man can. It's just—it's yeah. just the way it works. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, I could see that. I used to do loss prevention myself, and oh, okay. um, and I felt like it was a lot easier for for female like specialists to get up close and to be able to be really like close to watching someone try to steal something Mm -hmm. because I felt like guys would kind of call guys out or even girls would call guys out because but I feel like for whatever reason they'd be more intimidated by like a female security you know right person right it was a little harder for them to like calm out you know absolutely and in my business uh, I uh, have some employees and one is a senior female in her late 60s. Mm. She doesn't look like anything you would ever suspect to be a private investigator. She can blend in and she can get information out of people and they never know that they were talking to a private investigator. They think that they're talking to grandma. Yeah. Uh, Whereas I, as you know, a a middle-aged white male, uh, they're going to be a little suspicious. Yeah. So who, who usually will hire a private investigator? Well, some private investigators specialize in certain things. For example, some specialize in insurance fraud, uh, workman's comp type cases. And in those cases, uh, the client is going to be insurance companies. Hmm. I have kind of a general private investigation business. Uh, I would say that about 50% of my clients are attorneys. Uh, either criminal defense attorneys or civil attorneys. And then I would say about 30% of my cases come from businesses, mostly involving some type of workplace theft or embezzlement. Mm. And then about 20% come from private individuals. And these kind of cases, uh, I think, are the most interesting because they range in anything from uh, child abuse cases, child custody cases, uh, elder neglect cases, and all mm-hmm. types of different frauds and embezzlements. And all, lately, I've been doing quite a bit of missing person cases. Yeah. Is there any particular reason for that, you think? or? Well, I don't, I don't know. It kind of My missing person cases just kind of ebbs and flows. Hmm. Uh, and these are not missing people that uh, disappeared under, uh, you know, maybe uh, criminal circumstances. These are usually parents who are looking for their adult children who they haven't uh, Mm. talked to in many years for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I had a case recently where a client in Florida called me up and said he hasn't talked to his son in uh, decades. And he last knew that his son, who happened to be 49 years old, was living in the Portland, Oregon area. Oh. So that's why he called me. Um... And he explained to me that he's getting up in age. He doesn't know how much longer he's going to live. You know, I didn't question him about what his health condition was. 
uh, I don't know if he had terminal cancer or just getting up in age and knows that he can't live forever. And he really, really wanted to talk to his son, but he had no way to get in contact with him. Yeah. Um, so I took the information that he did have, and I started talking to neighbors where he used to live. Uh, I traced phone numbers that he used to have, email addresses. And I never really found him, but he found me. Oh. Which is kind of strange, but, yeah. you know, after I was uh, pounding the pavement and making phone calls and asking about him, uh, I suddenly got a text on my phone that said, are you looking for me? And I texted him back and said, well, who are you? And, and he gave me his name, and I says, you know, yeah, I am looking for you. And then he texted me back again, and he says, what do you want? And I said, I really need to to meet with you. This is not something that I want to uh, do by text. And he says, uh, I don't want to meet. Okay, that's fine. Uh, at least I knew he was alive and well. Yeah. Uh, but I did convince him to call me on the phone. And so I talked to him on the phone, and I let him know that his father uh, loved him very much. And uh, his father actually told me that he goes to bed every night thinking about him and wondering whether he's alive and well. And I said, I don't know what happened with you and your father, what the dynamics there were, but he's an old man now, and he would like to get in touch with you, if nothing more than the talk on the phone. And the son's response was, I don't really know what to say to him. And I said, well, okay. And then the son told me, well, your job is done. If you were hired to find me and pass on this message, then you have done so. Thank you very much. Okay, goodbye. And I passed that information back on to Father, who was very disappointed. Yeah. But a couple of weeks later, I get an email from Dad, who tells me that his son contacted him. Wow. So it took some time for the son to think about it, and son finally decided to call Dad. Hmm. And Dad said that son was even going to come visit him in Florida. Wow. I don't know if they ever, he ever did, but what I do know is that as a result of this uh, client from Florida hiring me and me asking questions, poking around, doing my job as an investigator, that I caused the son to reunite, at least to some extent, with his father, which made me feel real good. That's awesome. So that's kind of a, the missing person cases that I get. Um, they're usually adults who are missing under, you know, somewhat suspicious circumstances, but nothing that law enforcement would be willing to get involved with. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess just kind of while we're on that topic, like reaching out to somebody they haven't talk to in some time i guess this is a, a personal kind of question like me and a younger sibling were adopted from you know when we were small kids and everything and obviously we don't we don't really have a way to get in touch with who our biological parents were have you ever had to deal with that like where somebody was adopted at a really young age knew nothing about their parents and tried to see if yeah, right. Adoption cases. I, I'm not an expert in those. I have put some time into working some of those cases, and I have had some success. Mm -hmm. But they're very difficult because usually all the records are sealed. Yeah. And the information that the uh, person can provide is very, very limited. Mm -hmm. 
So sometimes I can have success in those and sometimes I can't. Uh, the reason that I don't do too many of them is because it's a very time-consuming process. Yeah. And because people pay me generally by the hour, uh, it can run up to quite a large bill and there's no guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some cases, uh, it can be done. Uh, parents, birth parents can be discovered. Uh, siblings can be discovered. Um, but it's a long, difficult process. And most people, frankly, can't afford to hire a good investigator to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems weird, too, because sometimes you don't know if those if they want to be contacted, you know, which would be kind of disappointing if you ended up spending, you know, a ton of money and then right. they don't even want to meet with you. Right, because usually what I do uh, is I cont- if I find the birth parent, for example, and usually they're they're quite elderly by this point, you know. They're mm-hmm. in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, I contact them and I say, uh, look, your uh, your child that you gave birth to is looking for you. Uh, would you like me to put you in contact? Sometimes they say no, and then that's it. Wow. Uh, sometimes they're not quite sure, uh, which is often the case, and, and I can work with that. But what I don't do is just give the information to whoever hired me to then contact the parent on their own because that sometimes doesn't work out too well. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, it kind of came up a little bit in that last, uh, in your last answer, but how much does it cost to hire a private investigator? Well, that varies depending on where you are in the country. Obviously, in your, if you're in New York City, it's going to cost you more to hire a private investigator than if you're, let's say, in uh, Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the Portland area... You could hire a private investigator from anywhere from about $50 an hour to about $200 an hour. Wow. Uh, I can tell you that my basic rate is $70 an hour mm-hmm. plus expenses. That's kind of on the low end of the spectrum, but it works for me. Yeah. And some people, when they hear $70 an hour, wow, you know, that's a lot of money. You know, and it is for the average working person, it is a lot of money. But when you think about it, if you take your car into an auto repair shop to get it repaired, you're paying about $100 an hour in labor. Mm-hmm. You hire an electrician, you're paying 80 to $100 an hour. Uh, <laughs> if you hire the uh, Roto-Rooter drain guy to come over here and unclog your drain, you're going to be dropping a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. So everything costs money, and private investigations is a business. And generally speaking, in business, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Now, you can pay $200 an hour and get a really incompetent private investigator, just like you can hire an attorney and pay a lot of money and get an attorney who didn't really do a good job. So the amount of money you pay for whatever service, whether it's private investigations or attorneys or, you know, the drain cleaning man, uh isn't really always an indicator of the quality of work that you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you get what you pay for. Yeah. Um, so what what are a few things a person should usually look for when hiring a private investigator? Um, on my blog, uh, I wrote an entire article about this. So those people who would like more information could go to my blog, physicalsecurityonline.com. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, some of the things that I think uh, a person should look for in, in hiring a private investigator, 
uh, is licensing. Mm-hmm. Are they licensed? Do they have any complaints against them? Uh, and that's pretty easy to find out online, or sometimes you have to make a phone call to the licensing agency. That would be first and foremost because there are some people in the business who are not licensed. Yeah. Or who were licensed at one time, and for whatever reason, they're no longer licensed. Um, then I would say take a look at the investigator and see what kind of experience that investigator has. Mm-hmm. And where do they gain that experience? You know, a lot of people don't ask this question. Yeah. Uh, but they should. Uh, if a person has a law enforcement background, you can generally know that they have experience in investigating all types of crimes. Uh, if they don't have a law enforcement background, like I said, they might still be a very good investigator. But ask some questions about what their experience is. Um, how did they gain their experience as a private investigator? And then I think formal education makes a difference. Now, like I said, you don't have to have any level of education to be a private investigator here in Oregon. Hmm. And some people who have no formal education do quite well. Yeah. And, but there, there is something to be say to say about uh, academic achievement and scholastic credentials. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons why the FBI uh, requires uh, at least a bachelor's degree or more to even apply. Yeah. So I think that there's nothing wrong with asking about someone's formal education. Um, and seeing what they say, and if they kind of hem and haw about it or kind of give you some uh, some uh, answers that just don't make sense, then that's kind of a red flag. And then I would say there's a bunch of intangible considerations, and those would be things like how do you connect with the person? Is the person willing to answer your questions honestly, mm-hmm. or are they trying to pressure you to hurry up and hire them? Because mm-hmm. this is a business. And there's a couple of different business models in, in this business, probably like in every business. And one is uh, you get as much money out of the client as you can up front. I don't operate under that business model. Yeah. Um, I can get started on a case for a lot less than some other investigators. And we see how it goes. And after, you know, a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months of investigations, uh, we can reassess. We can see, are we getting anywhere? Yeah. Uh, and if we're not getting anywhere, maybe it's not worth putting more money into it. So I would say that if a private investigator is kind of acting like a used car salesman and trying to pressure you to make a large payment up front, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that might be totally legit, but it's also a red flag. Yeah. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think are important when you're thinking about hiring a private investigator. Is it worth trying to like set up a like a time to go sit down and have coffee with them or something? Like, would most do that? You think? Be you know, to... some will and some won't. Hmm. In my business, I offer free consultations by phone or by email. Sometimes I will meet with a client in person for free, but oftentimes I will not because hmm. I've found out over the years that a lot of the people who want to meet with you in person are not really serious about hiring you. Mm. They just want to talk. They want to pick your brain. They want to get information, but they never really end up hiring you. And it takes a lot of time to meet with people. Uh, So sometimes I will meet with people. I particularly meet with attorneys. But then again, I would say probably 90% of all clients that I've worked for, including attorneys, I've never physically met. 
Oh, wow. Uh, a lot of my clients come from the local area here, but I get a lot of clients from out of state. And we talk on the phone, we exchange emails, uh, and we, uh, we go from there. Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of work for some, some local attorneys that I've never met. Wow. So some that are even like out of state and everything. I'm some sure from out know. of state and some from, from local. Uh, and there are other attorneys who really want to sit down and talk to you and, uh, and hand you a case file and, uh, you know, look, look at you eye to eye. And that's fine. Uh, but it's not necessary, I don't think, to physically meet with a private investigator uh, to, in order to get good results. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the cases that you've you've worked on. Um, would you say that there's a particular? I mean, you said you've been uh, doing a lot of missing persons cases, but in general, is there a kind of case that is more common than not? Well, in my business, since I kind of I don't specialize in anything, yeah, uh, I have the criminal defense cases, um, which make up a good portion of my business. But I get all kinds of cases, you know, like the missing person cases. Uh, I had a uh, elder fraud abuse case here uh, mm. recently. It's a long, complicated story, but basically, uh, family believed that a caregiver was taking advantage of uh, their elderly father wow. and uh, weaseling money out of him—big sums of money. Wow. Um, and that. Case led to a lot of other things, uh, perhaps even a murder. Whoa! Uh, that went uh, undiscovered. Um, I did a real comprehensive background on this caregiver and found out that she was associated with a man who went missing in the 1980s and has never been found. Wow! Uh, presumed dead, but never declared dead and to this day i believe she's still collecting his social security and his veterans benefits wow that's uh there's just a lot of uh, hinky things in that case that kind of led me to believe that you know maybe he's didn't uh, get lost in the woods like uh, everybody kind of thought maybe he was actually murdered jeez um i didn't pursue it much further because the client that i had uh, really didn't want to pay me for my time and effort to pursue it further. I put a lot of time and effort into it on my own. Uh, and it was the possible murder occurred outside of Oregon. So I let the uh, law enforcement authorities in that state know about it. And I don't know if they ever followed up or not. Uh, but anyway, it was a, just started out as a elder fraud case that kind of morphed into a possible murder investigation. Yeah. It blows my mind how often that there is just murder cases that go unsolved or people like, I think there was two bodies that were just found just North of Estacada or something. Right. Out and, in the forest. Right. There. As my understanding, they were found a man and a woman, uh, were found in a gravel pit, yeah. which was used for target shooting and their dog was still there. Yeah. You're just meandering around. Um, and I know that the sheriff's office is investigating that case. And whether they have any leads or not, they're not saying. Mm. Um, but that's definitely a murder. But there are a lot of people who go missing. And unless there's some overt suspicious activity, 
most police agencies won't do much more than take a report. Hmm. And that's uh, when uh, family members um, call upon a private investigator. Because I would say the vast majority of the time when somebody goes missing, they've done so on their own volition. And there's really no suspicious circumstances. But you never know. So is it usually the the police will make like a heavy effort to try and track someone down if it gets to be where it's like a serial kind of case, like where it's like something that's ongoing, keeps on occurring, more bodies are... Well, yeah, if there's evidence that there's a crime, uh, the police will investigate it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, actually they do a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. But if there's uh, no real evidence mm-hmm. of a crime... Yeah. Um, then the police aren't going to really do much. Yeah. Um, I had a case once where a man and woman who were in their 30s, they were married, they both worked, and uh, the wife came home one day, and on the kitchen table was $10,000 in cash and a note. And a note said something like, uh, I have decided to leave. You will never be able to find me. Um, here's your share of our savings. Goodbye. Wow. And according to the wife, they had a good marriage, uh, and there were no, there was no other woman or no man involved, uh, and he just decided to take off. She called the police, and the police said, "Well, you know, he's an adult. Uh, if he wants to take off and leave you, that's his business. We can't do anything." So she called her mother who didn't know what to do, who called the family attorney. And the family attorney, who I've never met and never did any work for, said, well, I know about this private investigator, George Babnick. He's done work for some of my attorney colleagues. Give him a call. And so she gave me a call, and that's how I got that case. Wow. And so I did all the normal things like uh, a police investigator would do. I talked to his friends who had no clue about anything uh, wrong in his life. Uh, he wasn't suicidal as far as anybody knew. He didn't have a drinking problem. He didn't have a gambling problem. I went to his place of work. They were very cooperative. Uh, but they said, no, he just didn't show up for work one day. Um, mm-hmm. They allowed me to search through his locker at work for any clues. And we weren't really getting anywhere. Um, I went to social media, and this is where I found out that nowadays social media is a big, big help in locating missing people. Hmm. I got uh, his friends, his Facebook friends, to uh, post some information and share it, and, and gee, within a couple days, uh, it was all over Facebook and, and other social media platforms. And I never really found him, but again, he found me. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, was still checking his social media. Oh, wow. And he saw all these people who were concerned about him. And he then contacted the wife. And they got back together again. And obviously he had some mental health issues, um, that nobody was aware about, aware of. Um, but because of social media... The word got spread really, really fast. You know, it's kind of like in the old days when uh, somebody was missing, or even if you had a missing dog or cat, 
you would go out and post flyers on telephone poles. You'd put up flyers on laundry mats. You'd maybe go door to door and leave flyers on people's doors. Uh, nowadays, that's still actually a good way to do things. But uh, you can also go turn to social media and get that accomplished a lot quicker. Yeah. And you know, let's face it, everybody has, well, not everybody, but most people has a smartphone, and they're using Facebook, they're using Instagram, they're using all the other social media platforms. So if you have a missing person, and if you want, you can get that information out there on social media very quickly. Yeah. I, I really thought that was going to add up to him being, like, kidnapped or something or something weird like that. You know, like, and that's uh, could have been the case. Uh, I always thought that... He probably did have some mental health issues, mm-hmm. but I thought maybe he would have already have committed suicide. Oh, and and we'd find his body somewhere in his car. Uh, but no, uh, he was uh, at the Oregon coast, and just uh, had some type of mental breakdown, and he just needed to get away. Hmm. Um, and had the mother not hired me to find him would he have reappeared on his own i don't know Hmm. yeah i bet you i bet you've had tons of cases where you wonder kind of if you didn't get involved how things would have ended up you know yes uh i think in some cases things would have turned out very very bad yeah yeah um are when you are in the you know needing to even contact local law enforcement for something you're researching are they pretty compliant when you need information from them or some are and some aren't yeah. uh you know i have a lot of contacts in law enforcement still yeah but i don't call upon them to get me any information that is confidential mm-hmm. um some law enforcement agencies will uh share police reports with private investigators and some won't. Are they allowed to? Or? Well, uh, sometimes they are allowed and sometimes they aren't. Oh. All, all, all police records are public records. Hmm. And any person has a right to access those public records. But at the same time, there are a number of exemptions that are uh, specified by law that allow uh, government agencies, police agencies, to withhold certain information. And that only makes sense. I mean, if you're doing a, uh, a uh, active investigation and somebody comes forward and says, hey, you know, give me everything you got. Show me all the reports. Uh, you know, that would probably compromise the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a process to request information from police agencies. And sometimes you get that information and sometimes you don't. But what I do know is you don't get anything if you don't ask. Yeah, And if you ask in the right way, uh, sometimes uh, most police agencies will be cooperative. Hmm. Um, do you deal with a lot of like cheating spouse cases and such like that? You know, I really don't. Oh, really? Uh, I, I get some phone calls about that, but I don't do too many of them. Um, and I'm not really sure why, mm-hmm. uh, other than, you know, Oregon for, for a long time has been a, a no-fault divorce state. You don't need to prove that somebody is cheating in order to get a divorce. Uh, and also, ta- also, a lot of people already kind of know what they know. Yeah. And they just kind of want some confirmation of that. And it is... Uh, I do get inquiries, and I do evaluate them, and I would take some of those cases. Um, 
Now, here's a very interesting one. Uh, I got a phone call the other day from a, a woman. I don't know how old she was, but she sounded, you know, maybe in her 30s, 20s or 30s. And she thought that her husband was cheating on her. And she wanted to know if I could help. I says, well, what makes you suspect that he's cheating? Uh, she says, he's using too much Viagra. Oh. She says, I don't even know why he uses this stuff, because he doesn't need to, but I count his Viagra pills, and uh, I know how many times we've had sex, and there's more pills missing than there should be. Oh. <laughs> and I thought, well, this is kind of an interesting deal. It is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't take that case, uh, but I did give her some advice on things that she might want to do, and there could be many other explanations as to why his uh, stockpile of Viagra is shrinking. <laughs> um, but it, it's, you know, it was one that I'd never heard before. Yeah. That's some interesting detective work on her part, you know? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very perceptive. Yeah. Um, I, I actually had an, a weird experience kind of once when I was on Craigslist just looking for people that needed, you know, something done, make a little bit of money, you know? And uh, I saw someone on there that made a post that was looking for someone to do surveillance. And I was like, I have an iPhone. I'll look into this, you know, mm-hmm. like whatever. And so I contacted him and he said, uh, yeah, I need someone. I need like someone that can follow somebody for me and like keep an eye on them. And I was like, oh, okay. Like is someone like stealing something from you? And he's like, no, I need someone to watch my wife. I think she's cheating on me and I want evidence of it. And mm-hmm. I was like okay, uh, like, do you just need someone? He's like, I thought he just wanted pictures of someone showing up. He's like, no, I want her, like, caught in the act and everything. And I was like, I don't know that I can do that for you. Like, sorry. Like, I really was hoping, like, it was just somebody stealing from you and I could, you know, help you try and catch him or something like that. But um, like you were saying, you don't need that kind of, you know, evidence to be able to get divorced. But does does that make a difference in the rulings of the judge on like what like maybe court orders for you know child custody or who gets what in a divorce yes it could uh, i do a fair amount of child custody cases and oh. usually what those involved is is you know obviously it involves a child or children and one person is seeking sole custody or greater custody more visitation something of that nature and they're trying to prove that the other parent is uh, not fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that involves uh, usually a lot of surveillance. Uh, I had a case recently where um, the father wanted sole custody of the child, and he said that mother is a drug addict and a drinker, heavy drinker. Mm. I don't know how true this is, but nevertheless, it's something to be checked out. Yeah. Uh, and he felt that if I followed this a woman around long enough, I would catch her drinking at a bar someplace and getting into her car intoxicated, and I could could film that, and I could even call 911 and say, hey, you know, there's a, a drunk driver who oh. just left Joe's bar, and uh, maybe if you got an officer in the area, you can stop the car. Uh, and that actually would be very valuable evidence for him to show that the mother of the child uh, is... Uh, an alcoholic, perhaps, or drinking and driving. That would be good evidence for him. Now, I followed this gal around for many, many days and didn't catch her doing anything other than mundane, everyday life stuff. 
Yeah. So any type of surveillance is kind of a, uh, a hit and miss proposition. Uh, I have some clients who can afford to hire me to do prolonged surveillance. And sometimes that turns out real good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, a person spends a lot of money on a private investigator, and they don't. And and the target, the person you're you're following, doesn't do anything. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. You can't make somebody, you know, do something. Um, but um, so anyway, surveillance is a big part of what I do, particularly in child custody cases. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So you do background checks on people and such, right? I do. And they're a little bit uh, more elevated than the 2995 kind of online yeah. background check thing. Right. If you go online, you can find many, many different uh, companies that will offer you for maybe 19.99 up to 39.99 something like that. Mm-hmm. Comprehensive nationwide background checks. And you know, some of them actually have some decent information. Uh, but most of them, it's just kind of a waste of your money. Oh, really? Uh, most of them will sell you outdated or just plain inaccurate information. And a lot of them you have to sign up with a credit card. And what, if you don't read the fine print, you're going to get billed every month for that twenty nine ninety nine, dollars And it's awfully hard to stop that billing. Um so there is some value to those online checks, but what I provide is something much better than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do comprehensive background checks uh, on people, and I search everything that can be found online. Uh, I use some software to do it, but I also there's a lot of human uh, uh, interaction, uh, human analyzing of information. I check uh, criminal records, civil uh, records, Etc. Etc. And on my website, which I will plug, go for it. dot com. dot com. I have a whole section about what I call the enhanced background checks that I offer to uh, individuals and businesses, and it is more than what you can get online for twenty nine ninety nine, uh, but less than what I would call a full out uh, background check where you actually go out and talk to people and talk to neighbors, talk to former employers. That's the kind of background check that a lot of people don't want to do because as soon as an investigator starts getting out there in the field, talking to people, uh, word will eventually get back to the target, the person that you're doing the check on, Um. that, ooh, somebody's here asking questions about you. And most people don't want that to occur. Mm -hmm. So what they hire me is for what I call my enhanced background check, which is a thorough, about a thorough as a, a background check as you can get without actually going out on the street and talking to people. Yeah. And I, I provide it in a very nice, uh, easy-to-read report, not just a collection of uh, raw data. Mm-hmm. And uh, typically they run about 15 to, to 30 pages. Wow. Uh, I do some of those background checks for uh, people who work in the marijuana industry. Uh, because they kind of like to know who they're doing business with because a lot of their business, in fact, all their business really is in cash. And there are some unlicensed and shady people uh, in all businesses, but particularly in the legalized marijuana business. And so some of the growers that I work for uh, like to know who they're dealing with, and so they hire me to check them out. Yeah. Um, 
Have you ever had to do like a background kind of check for somebody that is inquiring about someone they're considering dating or like marrying or anything like that? I have. Really? Um, and I've also had parents who have contacted me and say their son or daughter, it's usually the daughter, is dating some guy who they think is a real creep, oh. a real loser, and they want to get some dirt on this guy so that they can hopefully convince daughter that you shouldn't be seeing this guy. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really work out too well, because even if I find a lot of dirt, uh, it, them giving that information to the uh, their child isn't really going to change uh, who they're dating. Uh, in one case, I did one from her father, who was concerned about his daughter, uh, an adult daughter, uh, that was living with some guy. And I didn't find out a whole lot of dirt on the guy. Oh, he had some minor criminal convictions, and he's had some driver's license problems. But I didn't really find out anything horrible about him. And Dad was satisfied. He says, well, at least now I know. Mm-hmm. At least I have some peace of mind to knowing that you know, he's not a a convicted axe murderer or has a, a rape conviction in his background or something of that nature. So, yes, I do a fair amount of background checks on people who want to check out people that they're dating or of uh, parents who are concerned about their children dating certain people. Oh, that's interesting. Have you ever had to follow up on something like, it's going to sound silly, but like I just, when we were, uh, I went camping at the coast and I saw someone had a flyer up for a, a dog and they were offering a pretty steep reward just for like, just to have it found. Have you ever had someone try and, you know, have you follow up and investigate like a theft of a dog or like a, anything like that? I have. Um, they're not too common, but I have had people who have contacted me and uh, said that their dog was lost and then it was recovered by somebody who then gave it to the pound, who then adopted it to somebody else, mm. and they were absolutely convinced that their dog is now with somebody else. And they've tried to get their dog back, and those people say, no, you know, it's my dog. Those are really hard cases to prove unless you the dog has some type of microchip. Yeah. Because uh, even if you have a photograph of uh, your dog, uh, it could look a lot like uh, somebody else's dog. That makes and, sense. And emotions really get involved in these kind of cases. Um, so I don't get too many of them, but I have had some uh, uh, theft of dog cases, yes. Interesting. Huh. Um, following, uh, moving along here. Um, so I see that you've done criminal defense uh, investigations, and as someone who spent decades in law enforcement investigating crimes and building criminal cases against people, uh, and taking people to jail, have you had a problem uh, working now on behalf of people that have, that have been charged with crimes and such? You know, no. You know, as someone who spent decades uh, in law enforcement. Uh, my job at that point was to conduct investigations, uh, gather evidence and uh, for a criminal case so that somebody could be prosecuted. That was yeah. my job. Uh, I think I was pretty good at it, and I enjoyed doing it. And now, uh, when I do criminal defense cases, my job is somewhat the same. It is to gather evidence, um, gather facts, but I'm, I'm particularly looking for evidence and facts that will support the defense of somebody. 
Hmm. And I don't have a personal problem doing that because I've always believed that every person that is accused of a crime is innocent until proven guilty and that every person uh, is entitled to a good defense. Yeah. And so, you know, there have been a number of cases where I've worked on criminal defense cases where uh, I felt the person was completely innocent, yeah. not guilty of what they were accused of. There are other cases where I think the criminal defendant probably did it, did something, mm-hmm. but they didn't do what they were charged with. In fact, maybe they were overcharged with crimes. Mm-hmm. But I really don't make any personal judgment. I just go out and look for the facts. The facts are what they are, and I try and uncover them, and I present them to my client, who would be the defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And then that attorney uses them in whatever manner he or she is thinks best for their client. Sometimes that is uh, the once I do an investigation and I give my results to the defense attorney, the defense attorney will sit down with their client and say, hey, look, you know, my investigator checked this out, and here's what he found. I think we need to cut some kind of deal with the DA's office and get this behind us. Yeah. Uh, other times, I can, even though the person committed the crime and they admit they committed the crime, I can find some mitigating circumstances that might help them during the sentencing phase. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is, I think that everybody deserves a good defense. Yeah. And I have no problem uh, working on criminal defense cases. Hmm. Have you ever uh, had any experience with trying to uh, investigate something for someone that's not really already been like, you know, charged with something, but has been like convicted and is in jail or prison? It makes me think of like the whole Stephen Avery thing, you know, right. like someone that's already been found guilty and they stand by their innocence and just want somebody to help bring, you know, bring justice to their situation. Have you ever heard of like any kind of private investigator working on something like that? Yes, uh, those are cases uh, private investigators do work on. I have worked on a few of them. Yeah. Uh, and I have uh, uncovered some information. Um, usually, by the time a private investigator gets involved in a case like that, a number of years have already passed. Yeah. And sometimes witnesses or people with knowledge of whatever it is that occurred that sent the person to, to jail. Uh, with time, they will change their story a little bit. Some of them will uh, even recant what they originally told law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, so those are the kind of things that uh, I would look for in, in working a case like that. I've done some, uh, but I don't do a lot of those kind of cases. Yeah. Have you had to work on many cases that are like, pretty old like have you worked on any that are like a 10 years old or anything like that where you're trying to find the truth about something that happened a decade ago or anything like that i have had a few cases like that um but not too many yeah um imagine those are pretty challenging they're very challenging um because you know witnesses uh leave the area uh some of them die um and so they're hard to track down. Uh, documents from that long ago oftentimes were not really saved mm-hmm. or they weren't computerized. Uh, if they exist, they exist in somebody's file cabinet someplace. Yeah. So that makes it more challenging. Uh, 
Basically, the older a case is, the harder it is to solve. And that's true in law enforcement, and that's true in the private investigation business. Does law enforcement ever refer people to, like, if they persist to the police saying, like, I, I want you guys to investigate, you know, this that happened, do they ever say, like, you know, we aren't this time, we can't spend any time doing this, but maybe you should contact, you know, George Babnick or... Do they ever do that, like, at all? Well, I think there are plenty of times when law enforcement will tell someone that, hey, we just don't have the resources to investigate this any further. Um, they'll probably tell it to you in a nice way, but basically your case is going to be shelved, hmm. and it's going to sit there unless some new evidence comes comes up, and that's understandable. I mean, there are more crimes than there are cops, and yeah. so you have to prioritize your investigations, and if you've got a murder like out in Estacada where two people were shot and killed in a rock pit, that's going to take priority over a burglary investigation. Yeah. Uh, so I understand that. And there may be circumstances or, or cases where law enforcement might say, well, you know, you might consider hiring a private investigator, but I don't think they're going to recommend a certain uh, private investigator. Yeah. They might just say, well, you know, if you really want to look into it, you might consider hiring a private investigator because we're not going to look into it any further. Um, but they're not going to, or they really shouldn't, uh, recommend a specific investigator. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so kind of going back to the whole uh, criminal defense and all, all that stuff, do you think that people with money get a better defense than people who don't have a whole lot of money? You know, the short answer is probably the obvious answer, and yeah. that is yes. Hmm. It probably shouldn't be that way. Um, but if you have resources to hire the best criminal defense attorney, uh, you're going to probably get a better outcome than if you don't have those kind of resources. Now, just because you pay a lot of money for an attorney doesn't mean that he or she is the best. Yeah. But generally speaking, you get what you pay for. Yeah. And there are some attorneys who are very, very good at criminal defense. There are some who are not very good at all. And then there are a whole bunch of them that are kind of mediocre. Mm -hmm. If I was charged with a crime, I would want the very best. Um, but that takes money, big money. Yeah. Uh, so I would say, yes, a person that has wealth, generally speaking, gets a better shake from the criminal justice system. They also have money to hire private investigators. Um, maybe teams of private investigators, if need be. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you have money, you're, you're going to get off or you're even going to get a better deal. Sometimes that doesn't work out, no yeah. matter how much money you have. But overall, generally speaking, I have uh, found that uh, defendants with resources get a better shake in the criminal justice system. Yeah, that is kind of unfortunate, especially because I think sometimes there's those that really need it and just can't afford it. You know? Right, that, that is reality. It's always been that way, and unfortunately, I think it will always continue to be that way. Uh, you know, there's a certain level of defense that uh, all criminal defendants are entitled to, um, but um, hiring a team of investigators to go out and try and uh, 
dig up evidence and support your case. You know, most clients uh, can't afford that. Yeah. I guess something like that, especially like with, you know, a murder or something like that, finding your evidence, you know, for that, it'd probably be like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? If you were to hire a private investigator to go try and find that, like... It could be tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Uh, I worked a case where a woman... Uh, was charged with uh, several counts of assault in the first degree uh, for allegedly trying to run some kids over with her car. Wow, jeez. She uh, spent probably with attorney's fees and private investigation fees uh, three or $400,000. Whoa. She uh, got off, though. She did? She did. I really believe she was innocent. I'm not sure she was innocent of everything, but she certainly was innocent of... Uh, or not guilty of what she was charged with. I mm-hmm. think the prosecutor in this case kind of overcharged the case. Wow. Um, she did end up hiring probably one of the very best criminal defense attorneys here in Portland who doesn't come cheap. Hmm. And the uh, prosecutor kept offering her deals, plea deals. Hmm. And she kept saying, no, I didn't do this. I'm not pleading guilty. I will go to trial. And this thing drug out for almost two years, um, but with the help of some private investigators, myself and, and others, uh, we were able to uh, kind of prove that the state's case was weak. And when it finally came down to it, they offered her to plead guilty to a misdemeanor and get bench probation. She refused. She says, I'm going to trial. Wow. And... The county, it was a smaller county here in Oregon. The county just did not want, the county prosecutor didn't want a two-week jury trial over this. It, it would have cost them a lot of money. Yeah. Plus, their case was a little weak because of the information that the private investigators dug up. And so they ended up dropping all charges. Wow. So she got off probably because... She didn't do it, but she also got off because she had the money to fight it. Yeah. Anybody else would have taken a plea deal, even if they really didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I might have even taken the plea deal because it would just make a lot of sense. Okay, so you plead guilty to some misdemeanor, you get bench probation, and you move on with your life. She refused, and she had the resources to, to fight it. Yeah. Uh, is she better off today because of that? I don't know. Hmm. You know, she thinks she is, and that's great, but she's also like $400,000 lighter in the pockets. Yeah. And was it really worth it? I don't know. But that's just an example of a case that I worked on where I know for a fact that if this criminal defendant did not have resources to hire the best attorneys and the best private investigators, um, she would the charges would not have been dropped. Hmm. Is there? I'm guessing there's sometimes some pretty good attorneys in like public defenders and stuff, right? Or is it kind of hit or miss? Well, it's kind of hit or miss with all attorneys. And I say that as someone who is not an attorney, but I did graduate from law school. And I have a daughter who is an attorney. But it's kind of hit and miss. Hmm. There are some very good public defenders. Yeah, uh, I think they're overworked and underpaid. And but there are some very dedicated people there. 
Um, there are also some attorneys in private practice who charge a lot of money who I don't think are worth the money. Hmm. But as long as they got paying clients that are willing to pay that kind of money, good for them. I, uh, yeah, I don't even really know how public defenders get paid. Is it basically just our taxes go to pay them or... You know, I'm not exactly sure what the, the scheme is, but it, it ultimately is the taxpayers that pay them. Uh, they're on a fixed salary. Yeah, damn. Uh, and I think there's some money that comes out of a fines and in the court system that is funneled to criminal defense work. Um, but ultimately, it's taxpayer money. Wow. Um, and like I said, I think that public defenders are overworked and underpaid. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not good at what they do there i've met some very good public defenders yeah hmm. um well do you want to go ahead and uh kind of talk about the, the creepy guy case Just okay kinda... the creepy man case <laughs> this is kind of a long case but i will kind of summarize it here so that uh you know we won't take forever but again you can go to my blog physicalsecurityonline.com yeah. <laughs> and read the entire story a couple of years ago, I got a phone call. I was in my office doing a background investigation, and I, I got a phone call from a, a father who said he had a 20-year-old daughter who worked in a coffee shop here in Portland. I'm not going to mention the coffee shop, but if you've ever had a cup of coffee in a coffee shop, you've probably been into one of these coffee shops. And he said that there was a creepy guy who would come into the coffee shop periodically, not every day, but maybe once a week or so, sometimes twice a week, who would order one cup of coffee, and he would sit there for hours and hours and hours and hours, nursing that one cup of coffee. He would say nothing to anyone, but he would uh, stare at this young lady. Oh, jeez. He wouldn't pay any attention to any of the other women who were working there or the men. He would just stare at her. And she thought this was really creepy. She uh, also one time uh, went out at the end of her shift to put some trash in the dumpster in the parking lot. And she, after she put the trash in the dumpster, she turned around and saw him across the street watching her. Scary. Yeah. She told her supervisor, who was kind of just like a lead worker about this, and the supervisor told her, well, you know, he's not doing anything illegal. Uh, we don't kick people out of here. Uh, and if he wants to spend all day drinking his cup of coffee, um, we're going to keep serving him. And you need to keep serving him too. Jeez. Okay. So daughter tells uh, father about this. And father says, I want to know who this guy is. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, it's just very, very strange. So the plan was that Next time he came in, daughter would uh, text father, and father would call me, and I would rush down to the coffee shop. And since he usually spent hours and hours and hours drinking one cup of coffee, even though it was like a 20-minute drive, uh, I figured I could get there in time. And sure enough, uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a call saying he's there. He's now at the coffee shop. So I go down there, and uh, I see him. Yeah, he looks kind of like a construction-type worker, worker guy. Maybe he's mid-30s, uh, blue-collar type looking guy. Not doesn't look too creepy, but um, I order, you know, a couple cups of coffee and sit there and watch him. Um, and uh, he ends up leaving the coffee shop after like 
well, I was there like four or five hours, and he was Whoa. there a couple hours before that. Uh, and he gets in a taxi and takes off, so I couldn't follow him. My intent was to follow him to see, does he get into a car? If he gets into a vehicle, what's the license plate number on it? I can check that. Does he go to a nearby apartment? Uh, I can check that out because he might be living there. Does he go to another coffee shop down the street? Uh, but he got on a taxi cab, and I was on foot, so I could not follow. Mm. But uh, he usually paid for his coffee with cash, but this particular time uh, he paid with a debit card. So I got that debit card receipt, and I was able to, uh, through his credit card number, find out who what his name was. Mm. And once I found out his name, uh, I ran him through some databases that I subscribed to, but you could have actually just gone to Google and probably found out the same information. Mm-hmm. And I found out who he was. And he was definitely a creepy guy, a dangerous oh. guy. He was on federal parole. He had spent time in federal prison for kidnapping a young, petite woman in California, transporting her across state lines into Oregon with the intent to rape her. Jeez. Uh, he got caught. I think it was in some rest stop when uh, he stopped, and the uh, the gal that he had kidnapped made a ruckus, and the police got called, and uh, he got caught. He spent time in federal prison, and he was out on federal parole. So when you look into his background, that explained to me why he had this fixation on this 20-year-old petite gal working at the coffee shop. It's because she fit his profile. He was stalking her. Jeez. So I decided I would call up the coffee company headquarters. The only number I could find for them was a online was a customer service number. So mm-hmm. I called that number. I explained to the lady who answered the phone who I was and what I was calling about. And she was very polite, very professional. She took all my information and she gave me a ticket number, which corresponded to the complaint that was being made. Uh, they probably give a ticket number to whatever you complain about, coffee too hot, too cold, whatever. And she assured me that someone would get back in touch with me. Two weeks later, nobody called me. Hmm. Nobody contacted me at all. I talked to daughter and say, has uh, anybody from the company contacted you? Nope, no one. So I'm thinking, well, the guy's still coming in there periodically uh, and uh, staring at her for hours. Who knows what's going on in his mind, but oh, it can't yeah. be good. Uh, so I decided, you know, this is just uh, ridiculous that no one from the company called me like they promised. So I sat down and I wrote a letter to the CEO of this company uh, and explained to them in, in, in nice professional terms that what was going on and that, you know, hey, your company has a lot of liability here. You know about this now because I've told you about it. And because the, your employee has told her supervisor about this, and that if, if this guy ends up doing something uh, to your employee, uh, you're going to be not only maybe civilly liable, but it's going to be horrible publicity for you. Yeah. And, you know, that got results. Uh, I quickly got a call from the uh, global security director for this company, and we talked about the situation, and he asked me for some advice on what he might do. And I, I told him what I would do if I was in his shoes. Um, and among those things was to 
contact the creepy guy and say you're no longer welcome here. Mm -hmm. uh, please don't come into our establishment any again ever again. Uh, I don't know if that ever took place, but I also uh, mentioned that you know maybe you should transfer the employee to another store. Yeah. Uh, if she's willing to do that. Even if you don't have a position in another store, make one for her. Mm -hmm. Get her away from this creepy guy or get the creepy guy away from her. Yeah. And from talking later, a couple of days later with the daughter and her father, I found out that uh, the coffee company did do that. So then I went to uh, uh, the Portland police um, where I used to work for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, wanted to tell them about this situation because here's a guy that's stalking young ladies. He has a history of uh, uh, sexual assaults against young ladies. They should know about this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he's actually committed some uh, sex-related crimes, um, and there are open cases that he could be linked to. Yeah. But at the very least, I would think somebody from the police department should go have a chat with this guy. Mm -hmm. Or go have a chat with his uh, parole officer and say, hey, look, uh, this is what he's doing, uh, and keep tabs on him. And I got nowhere. My phone calls were not returned. My wow. emails were not returned. Uh, and these are people that I know, that I worked around. And for some reason, they just blew it off. So because I'm... A private investigator and I get paid to get things done I, I I've moved up the the chain and I uh, contacted the assistant chief of police at the time who was a person that uh, I worked with and that got results yeah suddenly people from the police bureau were calling me and saying oh we're so sorry we didn't get back to you you know we didn't get the email you sent uh, you know lots of excuses uh, and I don't know exactly what they did, but they ensured me uh, that they would make contact with him and tell him to stay away from these coffee shops. They would also look at him as a possible suspect in any other crimes that have occurred in that area that relate to, you know, sexual stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's basically the creepy guy case in a nutshell. Uh, I feel good about that case because I really think that because of my work, Possibly I prevented a, a serious crime from occurring. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't know where the creepy guy is now. He could be in some other coffee shop doing the same thing. I don't think his behavior is going to change. He might be back in prison. I just haven't uh, checked. But daughter was pleased. Father, who paid me to uh, you know, do the work, he was pleased. The coffee company should be pleased because it saved them from some really... Uh, large uh, civil liability, and what's probably even more important to them is it saved them from possibly a lot of bad publicity. Yeah. So that's the uh, creepy guy case in a, in a nutshell. I feel good about it because I was able to, uh, you know, help someone out and possibly prevent a very serious crime. Yeah, I mean, it's that's that's crazy. Uh, you know, it's. It's really easy to look at people and just see them as just people and not the possible things that they've done or something like that, you know, and I'm sure that you've been, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen and known a lot of interesting characters through your work, you know, but I mean, I'm sure you weren't thinking originally just looking like you were saying, you just look like a blue collar worker, 
you probably weren't thinking, oh, this guy's kidnapped somebody and try to run him through a state, you know, get him out of one state into another and had horrible intentions. Yeah, right. You know, I I didn't, like father and like daughter, I didn't know who this guy was or why he was doing it. I thought maybe that, maybe he has some kind of mental health issue. Maybe he's just a guy that's socially inept and Mm. uh, uh, who knows. But once I got his name, then I was able to find out his background and then it all clicked. Then I realized this is really a bad dude. He's here stalking this young lady because she fits a certain profile in his mind. And we need to take some action. And when nobody, uh, the company and the police didn't want to take any action, uh, you know, I went up the food chain. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's what I get paid to do is to get results. Yeah. Um, So let's go. Are you cool with diving into talking about your new emerging kind of business opportunities in the marijuana industry? Sure, I'm I'm cool talking about it. Yeah. Um, So are you okay with it if I ask if you smoke? Uh, I don't smoke. I don't don't use uh, marijuana products. Um, I don't feel a need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't have anybody any any problem with anyone using products that are legal. Yeah. Uh, in in Oregon and in many other states, uh, recreational marijuana is now legal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know I, I have no problem with that. Uh, also, um, because it's now legal, there's a new emerging business in uh, security for marijuana operations. Uh, and also uh, an emerging business for private investigators in the, in the industry. Yeah. You know, there, there was a time in the United States that, you know, mere possession of a very small amount of marijuana would send you to jail. And I have to admit that uh, in those days, I arrested people for, you know, having a, a, a small amount of marijuana. It was yeah. my job, and it was illegal, so that's what I did. Uh, but now that it's legal in many states... Uh, there are a lot of security challenges surrounding the marijuana industry. Uh, most of the business, in fact, all of it really, is in cash, sometimes large amounts of cash. Uh, marijuana growers who are selling their product um, to retail establishments uh, are dealing in cash, sometimes large amounts of cash, fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000 or more in cash. Man, uh, That creates a lot of security concerns for Ripoffs and uh, other issues like that. So I have gotten into the business as part of my security consulting business, uh, offering advice to uh, marijuana retailers and also marijuana growers about how they can make their premises more secure, how they can set up policies and procedures to uh, help uh, minimize uh, security risks and I've also done uh, a number of uh, uh, background investigations for the marijuana industry. Uh, people that are in the business kind of like to know who they're dealing with. There are a lot of uh, good people working in the business, but there's also some shady people, like there are in a lot of businesses. And when you're dealing in cash, you know, $100,000 at a time, uh, you kind of like to know who you're delivering that cash to, what their yeah. background is like, you know. Uh, have they been convicted of armed robbery before and you're going to deliver them a suitcase with $100,000 in it? Uh, maybe that's uh, not the wisest thing to do. Yeah. And maybe if you're going to do that, uh, you need to take some uh, security uh, procedures. 
So that's a, I also got a, a call that I didn't take but from a client in Medford, Oregon, actually outside of Medford, uh, where they have a marijuana grow operation that uh, uh, somebody snuck in in the middle of the night and, uh, and ripped them off basically for a lot of, a lot of product. Uh, I didn't take that case because there weren't a lot of leads. Uh, they did have some grainy, very grainy surveillance uh, photos. Um, I do believe it was an inside job because um. the person who was captured on, this, on the very grainy surveillance photos knew exactly where to go, knew how to get through a locked gate, and they did have an uh, employee who left the business a couple months earlier who I think was somehow associated with it. Um, but I didn't take the case because I didn't really think I could... Uh, do much for them and plus it was uh, a long ways from my home office mm. but in the marijuana business uh, the legalized marijuana business there are some opportunities for security professionals uh, and private investigators mm. wow and uh, yeah i'm guessing it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger because yeah i've heard that they uh there's kind of a market for uh people that actually do transportation, like armed transportation of, uh, of marijuana and such right. like that. Uh, you're right. Uh, that's not something that I'm involved with, yeah. but it is something as, as a security consultant I would recommend. Yeah. Uh, it's surprising that <laughs> with such large amounts of money, a lot of it is still being uh, hand-delivered by a single person yeah. to another single person who you know very little about. It's kind of scary. Uh, that's that's just uh, waiting for something to happen, yeah. uh, and when something does happen, I'm not even sure that it's reported. Um, and usually in security, people don't take any steps to prevent bad things from happening until after they have happened. Then yeah. they say, "Oh gosh, you know, we got ripped off. Maybe we should do things a little bit differently." So the service that I offer is to say, "Hey." Uh, I'll look over your, your company policies and procedures, even if you even have any. Uh, if not, we'll create some. I, w- I will look over your, your physical security at your operation. I'll make recommendations that will improve your security, improve your personal safety, and ultimately it will improve your bottom line. Yeah. And that's great because, I mean, it seems like there's more and more of these farms and, you know, shops that are popping up and... It's it's there's definitely a lot of money and cash flow in that business, so it would be pretty important to keep your assets and everything protected. Yes, and it, because it's an emerging business, emerging industry, uh, it still has some growing pains. Yeah, and there are some uh, growers and retailers in the business that I think do a pretty good job with security, but many don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just an emerging area for security professionals to get involved in. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, we can just do some uh, closing questions, but what advice would you have to anyone that is interested in getting started in the private investigation business? What kinds of things should they keep in mind that they should have ready to be used? Like you were saying, like software and such. Like I, I didn't know that you would be, I mean, it makes sense, but what kinds of, Things should people be keeping in mind if they want that kind of business? Yeah, for those who want to uh, get into the private investigation business, first of all, get licensed. Don't try and do it without a license. Uh, that will just backfire on you. Uh, so get licensed. 
and learn as much as you can about the business. I mean, that's true in any business that you get into, but it's kind of more difficult in the private investigation business because there's a lot of secrecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of experienced private investigators who, for whatever reason, don't really want to share their tips and techniques and their the ways in which they do things. Yeah. Uh, I'm not like that. Uh, I have mentored a number of uh, newly licensed private investigators over the years, and in fact, I'm still doing that right now. Um, so I would say get licensed, find a mentor, and you might have to reach out to a lot of different private investigators to find the right person. If you're here in Oregon, contact me. You can contact me through my website, which is babnickandassociates.com, and uh, I will uh, help you either find a mentor or I will do it myself. Um, there's a lot of equipment that you would be is beneficial in this business, but I would say when you're first starting out, don't spend a lot of money on on fancy equipment um, because it, it can cost it can, you know electronic surveillance equipment and even a good camera and all these kind of things can cost a lot of money. Yeah, and you probably don't need it to start out with, and then you need to get experience. Everybody gets better at what they do through experience. It doesn't matter whether you're a plumber, a lawyer, a doctor, or a private investigator. Uh, You get good at doing something, well, hopefully you get good by experience. And I'm sure there are some people who keep uh, making the same mistakes over and over again and never really master their craft. Um, But you get good at the private investigation business by doing it. Yeah. So you have to have clients, and you have to have somebody, either either a base of knowledge that you got somewhere. I got mine in law enforcement, uh, but you don't have to be in law enforcement to get that knowledge. You can get it elsewhere. Uh, and then it's applying your knowledge and, and learning as you go. That's true in, in any job. You learn as you go. And so that's been my advice, is get licensed, find a mentor, and start getting some experience and learn as you go and you will get better and better at your craft and um, someday your phone will be ringing day and night with people who want to hire you. Yeah. What do you say to begin with? Is there particular cases that someone should try and uh, go for or stay away from? You know, I, I don't know that there are any cases you should try and stay away from unless there are cases that you have, absolutely have no clue. Hmm. And I think there are some private investigators who take cases and they have no idea how to how to work those cases. But they do it because they've got a paying client. Yeah, I think that's the wrong way to go about it. Now, there are large investigative companies throughout the United States, including here in Oregon, that hire private investigators. It's mostly for surveillance work, for insurance companies, and workman's comp type claims. You know, you got somebody who's uh, claiming they've got a bad back and they can't work, so they're on disability. And so they send investigators out to uh, do surveillance to catch the guy mowing the lawn and, you know, uh, all those all those kind of things. Uh, those companies don't pay a lot of money but what they do offer you is the opportunity to get experience. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a consideration for somebody who's brand new in the business is to try and get a job with one of these major uh, companies that specialize in uh, insurance claims because it will give you experience. And uh, do that for a little while, six months, a year, a couple of years, whatever. And 
if you don't feel that you're making the kind of money that you should be making or the company doesn't appreciate the work hard work you're doing then move on but use it as a starting point yeah and that's kind of true in almost any business you you have to break into the business someplace and oftentimes the uh, the first job you get in the in the business is not the job you're going to have you know 20 years later yeah well, if someone is uh, interested in um, getting more information about uh, becoming a private investigator or in hiring you for some of your private investigation uh, services, what's the what's good ways of them to get in touch with you? I would say you can do a couple of things. First of all, you can take my name, George Babnick, and just put it into Google. Okay. And you will find all kinds of links that will link back to me. Uh, you could also go to my blog, physicalsecurityonline.com, or my main website babnickandassociates.com and reach me through any of those ways but if you forget about physicalsecurityonline.com or babnickandassociates.com just put George Babnick into Google it will help if you put George Babnick Portland Oregon but you can just put George Babnick and on page one of Google you will find plenty of references to me great well, thanks, man. I really appreciate all of your info, and um, yeah, I think that a lot of people can gain a lot from the knowledge that you had to share. Just because you hear about private investigators, and you, you know, you see them on TV and everything, but obviously, there's just people get mixed ideas of what they can do, what they can't do, and um, yeah, I think this is a really insightful conversation. I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my episode with George Babnick. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed it and were able to learn a thing or two about the private investigation world. Maybe you'll seek out a career in it for yourself or go seek services from George Babnick. Anyhow, um, if you have any uh, ideas or um, comments about the show, feel free to send them to me at noparticularpodcast.gmail.com. Tell your friends and family about the show. Rate and review it. Let me know how things are going. But uh, anyhow, thank you for listening to the episode and uh, check out the next one.